0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word and proclaim his gospel. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Almighty God and judge of the secrets, completely wash away our guilt and cleanse us from our sin. Create a clean heart for us and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Be gracious to us according to your faithful love in King Jesus. Amen. Well, let's face it, right? Some things are simply a match made in heaven. Some things are simply a match made in heaven. You could think of maple syrup and bacon, steak and whiskey, tea and tapioca. But there there are other things that are simply a combination concocted in hell. I I just think about it. Uh, Bananas and jaffles. Pizza and pineapple. (laughs) Durian and alcohol, apparently. Well, durian and anything, really. Uh, See, there are some things in life that just simply don't go together. They're they're like two north-facing magnets which will never, ever meet. And today, God wants us to see those two things in the world. That more than anything else just don't go together. You see, more than anything else, they are so incompatible that they can't even coexist. I wonder if you can guess what they are. What are those two things that are so incompatible in this world that they can't even coexist? Well, here it is Jesus and religion. Jesus and religion. Now, I don't know, you might be a bit surprised by that. You might think that Jesus isn't just compatible with religion. He defines it, surely. I mean, after all, isn't he the founder of Christianity? And isn't Christianity just a set of rituals and and traditions, rules and regulations? Isn't Jesus someone who tells us what to do and how to live? Doesn't he tell us to obey a set of rules in order to be accepted by God? See, you and I could be forgiven for thinking that Jesus actually personifies religion. And yet, as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, the greatest enemy to Jesus and his kingdom is not his family, the crowds, or even King Herod. No, the greatest enemy to Jesus and his kingdom are religious leaders. You see, to his unbelieving disciples, Jesus was astounded. To the lost crowds, Jesus was gutted. But to the religious leaders, Jesus was angry. He was furious. See, you might be surprised to hear it, but Jesus hates religion. Let's look at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 2. You'll see it on the screen. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. So they're back, right? The religious leaders, they're back from Jerusalem, and they are not happy. They noticed that Jesus' disciples, they're eating bread without having washed their hands. So they ask in verse 5, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? Now, now let's be clear, the Pharisees are not concerned here with the personal hygiene of Jesus' disciples. They're, They're not obsessive, compulsive, clean freaks. They're not like some of us, or maybe me, at public toilets who open the cubicle door from the top or kick the toilet seat with our feet. No, their concern is not their personal hygiene, but their spiritual hygiene. Not whether the disciples are clean before each other, but whether they're clean before God. Every year, some of you know that I go back to Malaysia, and I love eating something called banana leaf. You see, on this banana leaf that they give you, there's rice, there's curry, there's some vegetables and other side dishes. And the normal way of eating banana leaf is with your hands. You you twist it, you scoop it, and then you flick it. Now, there is one very, very important cultural rule here if you ever go to Malaysia. You must only eat with your right hand. You must never... Ever, ever use your left. You see, in Malay Muslim culture, your right hand is used for clean purposes, right? Eating, touching, and interacting with other people. But not your left hand. Your left hand is used for unclean purposes, specifically wiping bodily waste. So you can imagine, right? You must never, ever use your left hand to eat food in Malaysia. Because if you do, you will make your whole body unclean. It's not all that dissimilar from what's going on here in Mark's Gospel. You see, it's why all the way back, in Exodus chapter 30, the Lord said to Moses that the priests, the people who represent God's people, must wash their hands and feet. Because if we're going to come before God, we must be clean before God. See, if we're going to come before God, we must be clean before God. But the Pharisees here in Mark's gospel know they're demanding far more than even that. They're demanding not just that the priests wash themselves, but that Everyone washes themselves. You see what they've done? They've, they've added human tradition to God's commands. Now, notice verses 3 and 5, right? The Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of not obeying the tradition of the elders. Not God's laws, but their traditions. And in verse 4, we see how extensive these traditions are. Uh, when you come from the marketplace, meaning the unclean place, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they've received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and even dining couches. You see, for the religious leaders, unfortunately, God's command to be clean was just not clean enough. They wanted to be extra clean, cleaner than even what God required. So they created rules, rituals, and regulations that went far beyond what God ever commanded. They imposed a standard of cleanness that, let's face it, no one could ever truly meet. Human religion replaced God's commands. Human religion replaced God's commands, hence the Pharisees' accusation in verse five. You see what they're asking? They're not asking, why are your disciples disobeying God? Because they're not. They're asking, why are your disciples disobeying us? Why aren't they religious enough? Let me just think about that, right? And what a remarkable accusation to make against Jesus, that somehow the founder of Christianity is not religious enough. Last week we saw that Jesus saw that lost crowd like sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved, he was gutted. But here he sees the religious leaders and is Furious. Look at what he calls them in, in verse 6. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it's written, "This people honor me is with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. You know, in 2017, it was found that two in every three Australians perceive Christians as hypocrites. Well, guess what? They're not alone. Because that's exactly what Jesus calls the religious leaders of his day. You hypocrites. Jesus hates religion. And from the prophet Isaiah, he's going to tell us exactly why. And here are our two points for today. Here are the two problems with religion. Firstly, religion is all about us, not about God. Secondly, religion is all about our hands and not about our hearts. Let's look at that first point together in verse 8. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition." See, God's original plan was for all of us to be clean before Him, right? If we're clean before God, then we can come before God. Hence His command for the priests, our mediators, to wash themselves. Being clean before God allows us to come before God. But religion is all about us, not about God. It's all about human tradition, not God's command. See, the religious leaders didn't hold people to God's standard of cleanness, but their standard of cleanness. And the washing, which should have been a bridge to God, ends up being a barrier to God instead. I want you to imagine, it's as if there's a newly married couple who on their wedding day promise to love each other as long as they both shall live. It's a beautiful moment, isn't it? And then the husband says, you know what? I want to capture this moment and make sure the flame stays alive. So in an in, in effort to keep that promise, he insists that he and his wife will create a marriage tradition. They will write each other a love letter every day of their marriage. And you're like, wow, it sounds beautiful. Except for those of you who are engaged, you're like, "Nah, that is a very bad idea. See, in their first year, neither of them miss a day. Every day they remind each other of their love. But one day, The faithful wife who genuinely loves her husband, who honors her promise, forgets to write her letter, and the husband is furious. He accuses her of failing to love him. If you really loved me, where's my letter? But you see, he's totally missed the point, that the letter is supposed to be a bridge for their relationship, not a barrier to it. What was intended to be a blessing is now a burden. The letter was never the point. It existed only to serve the promise. But for the man and for religion, human tradition trumps God's commands. You see, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were replacing God's will with their traditions. They were demanding the letter while ignoring the promise. Look at what Jesus now says in verse 10. He picks up on God's command for us to honor our parents to provide for them in their old age. That's God's command. That's His goodwill. Now, as a side note, I know that a lot of you here right now are planning for your life ahead, marriage, children, family, and work. But I want you to see, please don't forget to plan for your parents, how you love them, how you support them, how you provide for them. that is something that honors God. But I want you to notice how religion takes God's will and then distorts it into our tradition. How religion makes it all about us and no longer about God. You see, in verse 11, the Pharisees demand something called Corbin. Now, you see, Corban was, pro- was property that a son would dedicate to the temple as part of his will. It's like I'd take my house and say, when I die, house is going to go to cross and crown. But until I die, my property is held on trust. Can't be used for anything at all, not even to support my aging, starving parents. They're not starving, don't worry. God says, honor your father and mother, but the son says, no can do. That is reserved for religion. So now we have this sick twist of irony, right? Religion d- abandons the needy and actually dishonors God. Oh, but it gets worse. Here's the kicker. God never wanted Corbin. He never commanded it. He never even asked for it. It is the solely patented invention of religion. See, religion demanded it at the cost of obeying God, at the cost of providing for our elderly parents, and it's religion that profits off everyone else's loss. It's no wonder that Jesus hates religion. Religion is all about us, our traditions, our profit, but not about God. Not about his commands, not about his glory. If you're not a Christian. I wonder what you think it actually looks like to follow Jesus. You may have been coming along to church and hearing about who Jesus is, but if you were to picture an image of what my life would look like if I were a Christian, what would you see? You might define Christianity by rules, rituals, and regulations. You might define it by the thou shalt's and thou shalt nots of the Bible a bit exposing, you might look at some of us, and you might say, well, I guess being a Christian means living by a new set of rules, going to church every week, praying every day, and I guess being a generally better person. And when you see that picture of the Christian life, a uh, life ruled by do's and don'ts, you might think to yourself, I don't want that. I mean, gosh, I, I could never do that. I could never be that. You might be a Christian, and that that might be what you think. But that's exactly what religion does. It imposes a burden of human tradition that isn't a bridge to God, but a barrier to God. Religion will always set a standard that none of us can ever keep. And when we fail, it's a when, it's not an if, when we fail, religion will always leave us feeling condemned, guilty, and ashamed. But I want you to know, that Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not like that. Jesus does not demand that we be more religious, perform more rituals, obey more rules. He does not demand that we do the right thing, think the right thought, say the right word, or live the right life. Because he knows that we can't. But where we can't, he can. Whatever standard religion sets, I promise you, Jesus satisfies. He is the only person in human history who lived the perfect life that we could never have lived. He met all the demands of religion on our behalf so that you and I are no longer bound by those very demands. You know, I grew up in the 90s wearing a sweaty wristband that asked the question, what would Jesus do? But the real question is not what would Jesus do, it's what has Jesus done? You see, religion says do. Do. Jesus says, done. Religion says, follow that rule. But God says, follow my son. Religion commands, condemns, and racks us with shame. But Jesus frees and forgives all who call on his name. You see, the problem with religion is that it's all about us. It's not about God. It's a barrier. It's not a bridge. Jesus has met every demand that religion has ever made and he has torn that barrier down and himself become our bridge it's amazing is as christians we have every reason to rejoice every reason to be free and yet for some reason even we christians keep running back to religion don't we we continually want to add our works to god's grace Just like the Pharisees, we replace God's commands with our human traditions. And if there's one tradition that many of us today will add to the gospel, it is the tradition of intellectualism. You see, we secretly judge our brothers and sisters based on what authors we read, what podcasts we listen to, what songs we sing, or what churches we attend. We look down on Christians who don't share our theological convictions, and we despise those who belong to a different tribe. You see, the truth is, we return to religion because we love religion. We love religion, boss. it values people on the basis of our standards, not God's. We value religion because it allows us to measure our success against someone else's perceived failures. We love religion because it feeds our pride, separates us from the pack, and gives us the illusion of special access to God that no one else has. But I hope you can see what a wicked... Religious heart. It's no wonder that Jesus hates religion. And yet we love it. We love it. Because just like the Pharisees, it's all about us. And it's not about God. Well, the second problem with religion is this. It's all about our hands and not about our heart. Look with me at verses 14 and 15 where Jesus tells a parable. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Whenever you read that, it's worthwhile just stopping listening and understanding. Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You see, Jesus revisits that issue that sparked this whole incident. It's only if we're clean before God that we can come before God. So how in the world Can I be clean before this God? Well, religion says, wash your hands. Fix yourself on the outside. What you do, what you eat, and how you live. You see, if you're a Jew or Muslim, the way in which you're clean before God is to eat clean food, right? For a Jew, your food must be kosher. For a Muslim, your food must be halal. For them, what is unclean on the outside can actually make us unclean on the inside. So live a better life, eat the right food, say the right things, do the right actions, but not according to King Jesus. Because look at what he says in verse 18 to 19. Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated or literally it passes straight into the toilet. Jesus is actually being a little bit crude here, right? He's saying, if you hope that clean food is going to save you, then you can watch your Saviour be flushed down the toilet because the problem is not with your stomach, it's with your spirit. The problem is not in your hands but in your hearts. That's why in verse 19, Jesus declared all foods clean. You see, if you're a Christian, I want you to hear some good news. You and I are not bound by any food restrictions. We don't have a kosher or halal diet for one simple reason. No food can ever make us clean before God. No food can ever make us clean before God. But it's not just about what we eat. No food, no action, no behavior, no lifestyle, and no good work can ever make us clean before God. You see, it's not as if we start clean on the inside and then we're tainted by the world on the outside. No, our problem with God doesn't come from without. It comes from within. Look at verses 20 to 23. What comes out of the person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, Murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. You see what Jesus is saying? The heart of our problem is a problem of our hearts. The heart of our problem is a problem of our hearts. If you ever studied Macbeth back in high school, you might remember this. We're all a bit like Lady Macbeth, aren't we? Who washes her hands with water every day and yet she cannot out the damn spot of guilt on her heart. Her heart is tainted with the blood of King Duncan, yet no water can ever wash that spot clean. What she didn't know was what can wash away her spot. Nothing but the blood of King Jesus. See, that's the problem with religion. It's all about our hands and it's not about our hearts. Religion will tell you, eat the right food, behave the right way, say the right words, live the right life. Religion feeds the lie that you and I can fix our hearts with our hands. Religion reduces a heartfelt love of King Jesus to begrudging, hollow obedience. You see, we're like that child, aren't we, who obediently cleans their room. It's perfect, but all the while we clean, we mutter under our breath, I hate my dad. See, God cares most not about how we live, but who we love. That's the point of Isaiah's prophecy, right? These people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What father wants a child to obey him out of fear and hatred? I'm convinced that so many of us cover our hearts with our hands. We cover our hearts with our hands. What do I mean by that? We focus on our actions so that we can ignore our motivations, right? So we want to be told, Adam, how much do I have to give so that I don't have to think about how generous I really need to be? We want to be told how to serve so that we don't have to ask how thankful we are. We want to be told what to do so that we don't have to ask who we love. In our church, we're blessed with this group of young, keen, excitable Christians. But here's my question. Do you have busy hands for God so that you don't have to confront a loveless heart for God? See, I wonder whether some of us actually come to church each and every week so that we don't actually have to answer or ask the question, do I truly follow Jesus? Plus, think about it, right? If I keep playing religion on the outside, I never have to deal with Jesus on the inside. We too often cover our hearts with our hands. Back in the 16th century, there was a guy called Thomas Cranmer, and he was one of the great English reformers. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, the founder of Anglicanism, and you can summarize what he believed in one simple line, and it's this. What the heart loves... The will chooses, and the mind justifies. Let me say that one more time. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. You see, if our hearts love lust, our wills choose pornography, and our minds justify one more time. If our hearts love success, our wills choose particular careers, and our minds justify this is my mission field. If our hearts love money, our wills choose certain investments and our minds will justify, I'll be generous when I get a bit more. So, I wonder, friends, when we fight sin in our lives, how do we do it? Right? When we fight sin in our lives, religion will tell us, focus on your hands. What do you do? What do you need to do? You need to get an accountability partner. You need to get an internet filter and you need to establish a new set of boundaries. Now, they might be good things to do, but here's the reality. Our wills will always choose whatever our hearts love. Our wills will always choose whatever our hearts love. We'll just find a new way around it. So then we go, okay, that didn't really work, so what do I have to do now? And then religion will tell us, well, if you couldn't change your actions, how about change your thinking? Change your mind. So what do we do? We read volumes of books. We go on the Gospel Coalition and Desiring God. We ask Pastor John and somehow he'll fix all our problems. We educate ourselves as to why our sin is destructive. But still, our minds will always justify whatever our hearts love. We'll just find another way to justify our sin. You see, whenever we listen to religion, whenever we focus on our hands and our heads, we will always fail. I promise you that. And we will always be trapped in a spiral of guilt and shame. Because what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The heart of our problem is a problem of our hearts. And the prophet Jeremiah warns us that the heart, your heart, my heart, is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? So if you're not a Christian, you might think to yourself, Adam, you know, I don't really think I need forgiveness. Because why would I need forgiveness if, I'm not, if I haven't sinned? Sure, I know some of you Christians here, I came to the baptism. Some of you guys have these really ghetto conversion stories where God saved you out of a life of drugs and crime. But look at me, I'm just a nice guy. Haven't said or done much wrong. Why in the world would I need saving? But Jesus says, mate, don't look at your hands. Look at your heart and be honest. Is what comes out of your heart clean or unclean? So you might then say, okay, fine, I guess I'll just change my heart then. Once again, Jesus says, mate, look at your heart and be honest. Are you really in control? Can you really change what you love? I mean, go ahead. Give it your best shot. Try and change your own heart. Try and change your affections. You simply can't do it. None of us can. You see, we might be kings of our wills. We might even be kings of our minds, but only Jesus can be the king of our hearts. Only he can change us from the inside out. Only he can purify our hearts, and from our purified hearts, enable us to think his thoughts and live for his glory. I wonder, will you pray every day, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me? The problem with religion is that it's all about our hands, not about our hearts. But more than what you do, God cares far more about who you love. See, if you want to be clean before this God, don't be religious. Don't focus on the outside. Don't try to eat the right food, say the right words, do the right things, or live the right life. Because the truth of the matter is, you can't. I can't. We all can't. Our problem is on the inside. And the only person who can save us from our sin, who can change us from the inside out, is King Jesus. On the 31st of October, 502 years ago, a German monk named Martin Luther nailed a 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany. And in these 95 sentences, Luther lit a spark that would spread like wildfire across Europe. It would be a movement for the recovery of the gospel. It would come to be known as the Reformation. And I want you to hear the first of those 95 theses, this is what he says, and it's on the screen. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Notice that, right? When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, just like he did at the beginning of Mark's gospel, he willed not just our hands, not just our heads, but our hearts, the entire life of believers to be one of repentance you remember what he said? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, friends, if you want to be clean before this God, if you want to come before this God, it starts with repentance, but not simply in our actions. It starts with repentance in our hearts. It starts by making Jesus the King of our hearts. Let me pray. Almighty God, and judge of the secrets, completely wash away our guilt and cleanse us from our sin. Create a clean heart for us and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Be gracious to us according to your faithful love. In King Jesus. Amen.